Hi, I'm Kara O'Cleef. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the first episode of the new season of the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. It's 2023 and Fall for the Book is turning 25 and this podcast is turning five. So we're really looking forward to an awesome lineup to celebrate these two big milestones. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Today, we are talking to Matt Bondurant and Bruce Holsinger. Uh, They both are writing about these major superstorm hurricanes, and I can't wait to get into it. And so I wanted to sort of open up this conversation by talking about disaster lit, whether it's historical, historical fiction, like near future. We're going to talk a lot about that today, especially since as I was reading uh, The Displacements by Bruce Holsinger, all I could think of where his meticulous planning and how real everything was, was World War Z. Uh, which especially in the light of like what happened with COVID, it, it feels so very real, uh, minus the animated corpses. So Kara, I wanted to know a little bit about like what you've read with Disaster Lit or what kind of what stands out in your mind. I love Disaster Lit and I, I I kind of fall on like the extreme end of it. Like some of my favorite, some of my favorite things in that genre are like the apocalyptic books, you know, like we're talking about hurricanes today, but I think about like Station Eleven, uh, by Emily St. John Mandel or Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Those kind of post-apocalyptic scenarios are things that I love. And I was actually like a kid who was like very, very frightened of the idea of the apocalypse for a while. This was just like an idea that terrified me. Um, so I don't know what what happened that made me get into that literature, but it was definitely something that was, that was interesting to me. And I think um, when I got older, I really was drawn to the idea of post-apocalyptic stories because I don't know, it's just something about the suggestion like that there are still going to be some kind of stories after the apocalypse that was that was weirdly reassuring to me. And so I really, really do love those kind of books. Well, I mean, I know you said that we're talking about hurricane novels today, but in, but in both of these scenarios, it really is post-apocalyptic, you know, for yes. Galveston, Texas and yes. for for Miami in the displacements uh, and they totally freak me out. And I, <laughs> I, I do love this stuff as well, but you know, station 11, I was very, very uptight reading that whole book, even though I was so compelled, I was like, Oh no. And I always find myself, you know, in, especially reading the displacements, which is more modern than say the 19 on early 1900s um, with mm-hmm. Galveston, you know, everybody like leaving Miami and all I can think of in leaving in the D living in the DC metro area is I better buy myself a kayak because it's the only way I will escape this area (laughs) if there is something like this, because, uh, you know, traffic is terrible. We're not in an ideal apocalyptic scenario, are we? We need to like find, find some cabin in the middle of West Virginia to, to hide out at. Exactly. Anybody who's ever been like, stuck they can't get across the bridge because there's like a tractor trailer fire they know that we're not ideally suited for mass evacuation but anyway i'm really excited to get down into the research and the history and the near future and all of those crazy scary interesting things with matt and bruce today matt bondurant's novel the night swimmer was featured in the new york times book review among other outlets his second novel the wettest county in the world is an international bestseller and was made into the feature film Lawless. His newest novel is Oleander City. Bruce Holsinger is the author of several nonfiction books as well as four novels, including The Gifted School, which won the Colorado Book Award. His new novel is The Displacements. Bruce and Matt, thank you both so much for being here with us today. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
We're really yeah. excited for this pairing, um, especially because both of you are writing about these incredible nation-changing superstorm hurricanes. And so to kick things off, we were wondering, um, could you tell us a little bit about each of your storms? So Matt, you've got a historical storm, and then Bruce, is just, yours is the near future sort of imagining of this, this crazy storm. So uh, Matt, can you give us a quick rundown of yours, and then we'll go to Bruce? Oh, yeah. Oleander City concerns the Galveston hurricane of 1900. Uh, which is still considered the uh, the you know the, the most tragic natural disaster in American history in terms of loss of life. The numbers run anywhere up to, you know over ten thousand um, or more. Um, it wasn't really a good idea of how many people died, but it was a catastrophic situation uh, for for Galveston. And you know what what it sort of intrigued me about it was Galveston at the time was sort of the jewel of the of the southwest a very wealthy port of entry for for goods as well as immigrants and so it was this very interesting cosmopolitan wealthy city but of course it had a also another side of the island where lots of immigrants and african americans live people that worked in the docks and when the storm came through and you know inundated the island destroyed a lot of the infrastructure, wiped out lots of buildings. Uh, you really saw a strong contrast in the respondent, not only the damage, but also the response. The wealthier areas were built on higher ground, of course. They were built out of stone. Uh, the poor areas were lower, you know, made out of wood. So you saw this real sort of disparity on who suffered. And it, you know, it struck me that these are kinds of, these are concerns and issues that continue to today when you think about Katrina or something like that. So it just seemed like a very kind of timely piece uh, to not only explore the the horrors of the hurricane, but also to look at it as a lens at, in American sort of racial relations, you know, economic relations, things like that. That That's what sort of, and then the several historical figures happened to be there at the time. So I was able to work them into the story as well. And so the the hurricane imagined in, uh, in my novel, The Displacements, is as an imaginary one it's the world's first category six hurricane as the book as the book portrays it and it begins off the the coast of africa and, and moves into the atlantic basin and into the caribbean it, it strikes in florida um and and levels a good part of south florida and then actually moves on to galveston and houston um and the the story that the novel tells is set you uh, i guess the near future you could call it that I, I try to leave it a little bit open it could be next summer it could be five years from now ten years from now but it's a story of of mass displacement of mega shelters that that brings a number of populations into um into contact and, and in some cases conflict with each other and so it, you know it's trying to think about what the the near future will look like what the uh, you know what mass massive catastrophe looks like and it, the the book has uh, you know the memory of the the great galveston hurricane in it actually there's a few places where you know people are stretching for for parallels you know the history of, of hurricanes is they've affected largely the American South. So of course, you know, Katrina is a precedent where where the the hurricane experts are are you know thinking about volume of displacement, volume of water. Um, but the Galveston one especially, which Matt, is this right that it didn't have a name, right? That they, they that was before hurricanes right. had names and it was just the the big one, right? That that great storm. Right. I'm glad that you mentioned Bruce that 
that Galveston plays has a little cameo um, in your book as well, because I'd love to talk to you both about research, because it strikes me that you must both must have done incredible research, if perhaps very different kinds of research. Bruce looking into, you know, FEMA, the recent um, hurricanes, more historical, and basically what would really happen in real time and having sort of that internet archive looking back as well. And then Matt, you know, I'm so curious the types of resources you you pulled and read to understand all of these different aspects that you were talking with. So maybe Bruce, you want to kick it off and then we'll go to Matt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So research is for for my novels is always a uh, a challenge and a thrill. And one of the challenges is to kind of contain it um, and make sure that it doesn't sprawl everywhere. My first two novels were historical novels, and that's the they're set in the Middle Ages. That's the period that I teach at, at UVA. Um, I, I teach medieval literature and medieval history. Um, and yet, yeah, and I'm always, when I was writing historical fiction, I was always worried about excessive research and showing that on the page and you know, having three pages dedicated to, you know, a discussion of a tapestry in a in a castle or something like that. And and with this book, I you know, the kind of research I did was really inductive. I wanted to know, you know, I did a lot of reading about hurricanes before I interviewed hurricane experts at the National Hurricane Center at the University of Miami. Um, and I did a lot of reading on disaster response, things like FEMA documents and and uh, just scores of them um, that that will treat everything from um, the regulations, laws and regulations about firearms in in FEMA shelters to collaboration with other non-governmental with, with non-governmental organizations and churches. There's even a FEMA document on sex offenders in disaster shelters. You know, it's just everything. So it, it was a lot of that and and a lot of just you know, trying to think practically about what kinds of questions I need answered. And I'm I'm not a you know I I, de- I tend not to read massive amounts of stuff before I plunge in. I'll often do research as I go along and, and understand the questions that I need answering because the story always comes first. And often, I often, as a, as a what I do for, for a living in my, my day job, I'm a, a researcher in, in many ways. So I, I try not to cloud my thinking about story with, with um, unnecessary amounts of stuff. It's, it's a kind of pr- a precise job that, where I just kind of go in um, when when I need to. Matt, I don't know if you work the same way. I, th- I think so. I think um, in general, you know, it, my my day job as a professor, I teach mostly contemporary and postmodern literature, so I don't have quite the research component that you do in your in your regular job. But I know what you mean. And in, yeah, and because Ole Anderson is a historical novel, uh, I was probably I was less. I was I was spent a lot of let, less lot less time sort of working on the the scientific aspects of the storm, and I spent more time trying to look at uh, you know uh, survivor accounts, personal accounts, you know, newspaper articles. There, there was various compendiums of survivor accounts, and one in when I started reading about this early on, and and the way the story came to me, by the way, is my my wife is a PhD in history, and she did her dissertation on immigration through Galveston in 1900. So she so she was finding all these great anecdotes and stories and about the hurricane and and some of the stories were just really remarkable just just bizarre you know anytime there's a massive hurricane we saw this with Katrina anytime there's a massive disaster like this the the kind of human interest stories and just the strange happenings and like heroic acts and all this kind of tra- and great tragedies of course start to pop up and um and one of the ones that struck me right off the bat was the 
the the tragedy of the of the orphanage that I feature in the first chapter of the book, where you know ninety three uh, young girls and a handful of nuns they tied themselves together so they wouldn't be swept away, and then they were all found you know buried in sand a week later, and it's this really sort of horrifying uh, element. So I spent a lot of time looking at like first person accounts, and and you know and and tried to incorporate as many of those as sort of possible. You know, trying to familiarize myself with the island, of course, Galveston is a place that I've been to many times. My wife's from Texas. We, we, our grandparents have a house there. So we spend a lot of time there. So I'm pretty familiar with the kind of uh, landscape and, and culture and flora and fauna. But of course, I'm, I'm trying to look at it in 1900, which was a very different kind of time. Uh, you know, the, the, the population and the, uh, a lot of things about Galveston were very, very different. So I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at maps, things like that. But, you know, as Bruce said, the main challenge really with for me in historical novels is is restraint and try, and and trying to slow it down and and uh stop researching because i mean i could just keep researching this stuff forever i mean that's the fun part and then you at some point you have to stop and say okay and i need to start constructing these narratives and then of course you find more interesting things and they and at uh you know and you have to sort of stop like and, and like usually in the middle of the book or even at the end of the book or even after the book people will write me like, Hey, there's this great resource about this and this. And I'm like, that's great, but I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do it. You know, I got too much, I got too much already. You know, this book needs to come in under, you know, 400 pages or something, or it's, so it's um, a lot of it is about the, the, the kind of restraint uh, issue for me is what, what to leave out. You know, there's so much to, to incorporate. You know, it's, it's interesting hearing you guys talk about how much of the research ended up being not just about kind of like like the scientific facts of, of these weather patterns, but the disaster response and, and, and how much that really influences what the story you're telling is. Um, and, you know, we've got stuff about the Red Cross in your book, Matt. Um, Bruce, you talked a lot about like the FEMA research that you were doing. How did looking at, at like disaster response specifically start feeding into other parts of the book? You know, like you're saying, Matt, eventually you have to kind of stop doing the research and get into the characters. So did some of that research end up leading directly into things like, like characters? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Red Cross, uh, once I found out that Clara Barton was there herself, that was really intriguing to me. And I, and I wanted to include that in there. And the American Red Cross, of course, was sort of, it's still in its infancy. It was relatively unknown to many people. And it was a very suspicious organization for a lot of people because it was considered a European socialist group or something. And I also just was just fascinated by the idea of a bunch of uh, of mostly women uh, centered in New England, uh, you know, traveling by train, you know, a day after to you know to do this rescue operation in Galveston, Texas. Just the sort of cultural differences and all that kind of stuff really struck me as kind of interesting to work with. And so I knew I wanted to work with um, Clara Barton, but at the same time, as a major historical figure, there's a lot written about her. You know, there's been. TV shows and movies made about Clara Barton. I didn't really feel comfortable, you know, completely inhabiting her as a character. So I, so I kind of kept her as a secondary and instead had her sort of a, a fictional character that was her second in command that I could work with as a, you know, a, a younger woman. And yeah, I mean, the, 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 the response, you know, um, in those days was, you know, drastically different. You know, Clara Barton basically spent most of her time writing letters, uh, asking for resources and donations. Um, in the weeks after the storm, you know, of course, the the disaster response to recent hurricanes has been much criticized for various reasons, for good reasons. But, you know, th there were parts of the island that were untouched or nobody, nobody did anything to help anybody for 
for a long time, you know, uh, days, weeks, um, the poorer parts of the island, basically. And then the, then the resources started to flow in and they, 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 didn't, they didn't have lo the logistics uh, to handle it. You know, it was um, all this money and, and, and food and all these things coming in on the trains. And it turned into almost kind of a another disaster of a kind where there, you know, all this stuff is rotting and going to waste. And then then there's, you know, claims of people skimming stuff off the top and all that kind of stuff, which I, you know, which I thought was great, great for 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 plot and drama, right? Or something to work with. But the um yeah, it was it was a very um very different kind of disaster response situation um being run by the Red Cross in combination with some local leaders and then just kind of ad hoc stuff. They were just kind of making this up. You know, nothing like this had really happened before. Um, you know, a nationwide emergent, you know, like it, word spread across the country and even internationally and money was flowing in from all over the place, Europe. And, um, you know, it was, it, so it was quite an extraordinary thing, very different from contemporary disaster relief. That's for sure. Which is a, a perfect segue into, um, you know, one of my main characters, the, the, the novel focuses around this one family, this one wealthy family displaced from South Florida. But one of the other viewpoint characters is named Rain Holton. Um, and she is a, uh, a disaster coordinator for FEMA. And this family ends up in a, in a mega shelter, an open air mega shelter in Oklahoma. Um, and I did a lot of research about what those would look like, um, you know, with, with such a large displaced population, but she's basically running the place. And, you know, she's a, a ex-military, she's got a lot of experience, but you, she's never seen anything like this. And so, you know, building her character through her oversight of disaster relief, you know, the ways that she's so, you know, one of the elements of this that I'm, I'm sure, Matt, that you thought about a lot is, is resilience and how people find those sources of resilience. And, you know, with Rain, I was, you know, I just was, was thinking, you know, what's her, what are her central conflicts in this mega shelter? She's dealing with a, a very mixed population who have lost everything. Um, you know, so there's this strain of thinking in disaster studies typified by books like Rebecca Solnit, um, Paradise Built, Built in Hell, which is a wonderful book, you know, about the, the ways that people find strength, you know, new shell, new ways of sheltering, new ways of helping each other in the in the immediate wake of disasters. Um, but there's also the longer tale. Um, and, you know, after, after a few weeks, after a, a few months in a shelter, um, things can go even more downhill. And so Rain is dealing with that. A lot of the characters in the novel are dealing with that. And so disaster response is is very psychological in a lot of ways. And it's just so much room for character. And with Rain, you know, I, I, I thought a lot about you know, her relationship to her daughter, um, who's a very kind of um, self-righteous graduate student in Santa Cruz, um, and, and how her daughter is responding to, you know, her mom working for a government agency that has screwed up so badly, but also how she's dealing with, um, for example, racism in the camp, um, in the in the mega shelter, and different factions dividing over different um, things, you know, sanitation, food. So she's basically just trying to keep this little world together. Um, and I, I just thought that that was a fascinating place to go for, for character. I almost wanted to make the whole novel about her um, in some ways. You know, Bruce, you mentioned um, using multiple point of view characters and, and actually both books, um, uh, both books have this. So I, I did want to ask about that and, and using multiple narrators. What did you both feel like this uh, allowed you to do with these stories that a single uh, narrative perspective wouldn't? And and what sort of difficulties did you encounter working with those multiple perspectives? Yeah, I could, I could start on this one. So, uh, yeah, that's 
I always start out wanting to write from a single point of view. Um, I just always feel like it's simpler and I could, you know, write a more direct story and then, and then it just explodes. You know, the challenges are, there, there's so many of them. Um, so about appropriation, about, about intergenerational kinds of differences, you know, finding a lot of, a lot of when I write um, in the contemporary mode, um, often some of my, my characters will be young people, young adults, for example, or teenagers. Um, so writing across generations, thinking about regional differences, racial differences. I mean, one of the, um, you know, one of the, the more interesting problems in that, that I had in, in working through the book was thinking about, you know, thinking about wealth and um and affluence and how it disappears um and how in in the case of this book how quickly it goes away so one of my characters i ended up coming up with with an insurance broker a kind of crooked insurance broker who ends up selling drugs in this mega shelter and you know so thinking about that you know and learning a learning about an industry through the eyes of a of a character who has this very ambivalent relationship to it so you know i always end up creating these these novels that have multiple points of view, always with one identifiable protagonist. But you know, it's hard to write write from those. And often you're in a character's head, and then immediately you have to switch out um, because you're going on to the next chapter. So yeah, I find it a, a challenge, but ex it's an exciting one, I think, always. Yeah, I agree. It, it, I see it as as kind of a challenge, and I think it's I think it's a a mode that I fell into. Uh, with what is counting in the world, but my first book was in a first-person perspective and just a single perspective. And then uh, what is County, I uh, because I had these three brothers and Short Anderson in it, I had to, you know, I had to account for them. There's two different timelines, so it was kind of more complex. But really, um, that that mode of um, of you know multiple perspectives, usually focusing on uh, four or five characters, for me comes from two main sources. One, it would be Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. And then the other um, would be uh, would be this one right here, Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which, um, you know, just really important, powerful books for me that I just loved at a very, uh, you know, when I was younger and just made a deep impression on me. I just like the sort of cleanness of, and I usually do the perspectives by chapter, you know, so like the next chapter, you know, and I just like the kind of clean, you know, clear, uh, the reader knows, you know, we're switching and, you know, it's identified and I usually have the name, you know, I, I, like, I don't want, I don't mess around with trying to move it, you know, seamlessly put it together. I, you know, I like nice clean breaks and it, I think it allows me to kind of compartmentalize the, the, the story a little bit. I can focus on, uh, you know, Joe Kowinski, the, the, the boxer in Oleander city, you know, I wrote a lot of his sections first different scenes um and then i could go back and and look at the diana or hester the little orphan girl i could work on some of her stuff separately you know some days some days i'm feeling one character or the other like bruce says you know it, it can be it can be challenging to switch but for me i think i uh you know there's certain writers out there too that can write a single perspective and you know depending on what kind of third person narrator you're using if you're using third person you know you can you can still cover other material you can still be you know the third person narrator can be in other places where your protagonist isn't you know that that happens all the time but i i don't know i i feel uncomfortable with that and i and i don't like uh leaving things unaccounted for um so 
when you have, you know, four principal characters, I kind of want to handle what each of them are doing at a pivotal time. And I kind of want to cover the pivotal scene from each of their perspectives. It just feels strange to leave something out like that. You know, I tend to over, I tend to, uh, you know, have an overabundance of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I have hundreds of pages of extra material that ends up getting cut down and, and cut out um, that I kind of work through because I'm, because I have a tendency to kind of panic about, um, you know, leaving things unaccounted for, you know, the way that somebody saw an event or, or felt about an event. And so I usually like to work with uh, multiple perspectives if I can, but, but I mean, really, I, mean, I, I think a lot of writers, you know, you, we, we read certain books uh, usually in our young adulthood, I think that leave these very deep impressions upon us uh, that, you know, every book I write is basically trying to fit into a kind of mold that was created, I think in my young twenties. Uh, when I was in graduate school and reading reading good novels for the first time as an adult, you know, seriously. And uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, you know, just really laid an impression, a mold by, you know, in every book I write probably will be, you know, try, trying to fit into that in some way. And I, I just like it, you know, I, I enjoy that 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 mode. And I would say, you know, one of my, uh, just to, to tag onto that, um, I was a big a voracious reader of uh, Charles Dickens when I was in college. And, you know, there you just have so many characters moving around at the same time. He's writing in an omniscient mode, which I tend not to do, um, rather than a really limited third person for the most part. But it's, uh, you know, it's one way of of thinking about characters. Also just, um, I you know, I always teach the Canterbury Tales. So in some ways that's in my head, uh, you know, different people telling different parts of this, of one big story. It was interesting reading your book, Bruce, and just having the the cadence switch, you know, teenage, young, mom, and just having it switch like within the paragraph. But what really struck me about both of your books is that they're both opening with children's perspectives. Hmm. I mean, you know, Mia is not quite as young as, as Hester. Mia in The Displacements is not quite as young as um, the orphan girl, Hester, but they're both sort of interesting and shocking entrances into this world, Hester going through the hurricane, Matt, you told the story about everybody being roped together at the orphanage, and then Mia in the camp in the middle of this crazy Lord of the Flies-esque sort of game. But but this makes me sort of want to talk a little bit about just your approach to the humanity and inhumanity that comes along with situations like that, because there are some extremely touching moments and moments of kindness and things like that. But then also you've both sort of touched on some really terrible things that happened as well. And even things that people aren't necessarily doing to each other, but the hard choices that they have to make. Um, so I'd be really curious, both in like this historical context and then sort of the near future context, what was your approach or your thoughts about sort of this comparison of humanity and, and inhumanity? Yeah, that was, that was, that was a real struggle for me um, because there was so much, you know, kind of unrelenting horror to this story. And a lot of it was very fascinating, like the drowning of all these orphans and, and just other sort of grisly deaths and, you know, bodies washing in on the tide. And there's so much uh, to work with. The, the, the orphan girl, you know, comes from this photo that's in the back of the book um, of when jo Joe Kowinski and Jack Johnson get released from jail. There's this little girl sitting there in the steps who's unidentified and nobody knows who she is. And she's got a dog sitting next, this old dog sitting next to her. But really that came from the the orphanage when when I heard that, you know, all all 93 of the girls died along with the four nuns. 
I think there's something natural, it's something in the, it's very human to, to sort of recoil at that. Um, not just the, the tragedy of it, but, but, but just that every single, that all of them died. I, I just couldn't sort of accept that everybody died. And so I just, I just, what if one survived, you know, and, and then the other aspect of it was, I knew that I wanted to deal with orphans or, or what they called storm orphans, because when Clara Barton came to the Red Cross, their primary concern was to deal with all the newly orphaned children that were running around the wreckage. And they, you know, there's the accounts how they had trouble coaxing them out of the wreckage to, because they were traumatized as children. And I started to think, well, you know, an orphan, you know, an orphanage, and then, uh, you know, basically doubly orphaned, you know, orphaned again, um, what would that do to the psychology of someone, a young girl? And I knew that if I, and I wanted to be able to uh, move around in that wreckage right after the storm, you know, in the day of the storm. And I, and I, and I knew that um, uh, that would be an interesting pers perspective to have this young girl um, who was clearly tough and resilient and, and resourceful because she was able to survive. She has this kind of attitude about her that I like, um, but, you know, it, it just would give me a good sort of angle on the, the you know, the, the, the storm and the aftermath and a very kind of, you know, wide eyed, you know, innocent. And it, and I, and there wouldn't be any sort of adult commentary on it. You know what I mean? Like she's not thinking about, Oh, the, you know, the, 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 the relief is, you know, you know, she wasn't thinking about logistical concerns. She was just sort of moment to moment. And that seemed like just sort of a fresh, exciting way to do it. But it's funny, Bruce brought up uh, Dickens because, you know, about 10 years ago, I went through a, a Dickens thing where I was trying to read all the Dickens novels that I hadn't read before. And one of the things I noticed about his books that, um, that I hadn't when I read them when I was younger is that in, in, in all the Dickens novels, you know, even the most bleakest ones like Bleak House or Hard Times or something, there's these moments of, of genuine sort of human kindness where, where everybody's together. And it's usually like some really cozy scene. They're like in a study and there's like a fire going and they're enjoying some kind of food. <laughs> and then there's people and they're, and they, they express to each other how much they care for each other. And like they're being really nice to each other. It's a sort of nice moment. And, 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 you know, I, I kind of realized, and I, this is before I wrote What is Counting the World, um, in my second book, I was, it's like, I, I want to have those moments. And I want to have moments where the characters yeah. are, you know, being human and, and expressing their their love and adoration for each other and just being nice and just having nice moments um, because because my my natural tendency is to be it's kind of bleak, you know, I yeah. mean, it's it's a bit, you know, um, it tends to be dark. And so I I with all my books, I've kind of purposefully, you know, uh, thought about moments that I could, you know, have them together. And I in Oleander City, there's this scene where they're you know, having this picnic on the beach, you know, Joe and, and and Diana and Hester, and they're kind of, the three of them are just having like a, like three people might, you know, uh, just, a, a, you know, a, a man and woman and a young girl having a little picnic on the beach and, and enjoying themselves. And this is, you know, after this terrible disaster, but I just wanted some moment of like human kindness happening. So yeah, no, I, I have to kind of, I have to sort of think about that and, 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 and purposefully you know, arrange some moments like that, because otherwise it's just a litany of horrors. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to do a lot of very dark stuff. I know exactly what you mean. That's such a, a great way of describing it about the, because I, I tend to go to the bleaker places too, even if I'm writing about something humorous, like in my, my last novel, The Gifted School, where, you know, I was, I was writing about these, these really competitive parents and they'd been friends for years and it was, you know, finding, you're realizing there's a reason that they're friends, even if they're going through this kind of 
you know, ultimately low stakes, but for them, what feels like a very high stakes kind of struggle. And in the displacements, you know, finding those those moments of lightness um, that that happen in the wake of any disaster, no matter how bad. And you know, your your question was also about the um, you know the, the ways that people uh, lapse into to poorer behaviors, and you know, and 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 end up taking advantage of a catastrophe, for example. And I, you know, I really one thing is that that the the mega shelter that I imagine this place in Oklahoma, in some ways, is a microcosm for for the country. And the country right now um, certainly has all kinds of reservoirs of hate and division and factionalism and so on. You know, so I didn't want to translate that automatically into this this new community that forms at this mega shelter. But it was something that gave me a way of of you know gave me a window onto what this kind of situation might be like. And as far as you know, writing from kids' points of views, a, another thing in Dickens, right, is that there's always a kid, right? There's almost always, no matter what your kind of scenario, you're always going to be inside the, the head of a kid at some point. And I, you know, and I also was thinking a lot about, um, you know, wanting this to speak to, wanting the novel, you know, if it has a message in some ways, it's it's not an op-ed, but it is about climate change and it's about, you know, the coming catastrophes, um, the present catastrophes that we're facing. And so I really wanted, you know, having a, a kid's point of view is in, in some ways to put that in the face of readers and to help them under, you know, help them at least think about, reflect about the kind of intergenerational problem of climate change and 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 what it's going to mean for everyone. It's been so interesting talking to both of you today, um, and we really appreciate it. One one question I always I, I always wonder about with with books like this is because you did both did so much research. Is there any one interesting fact or story that you came across that didn't make it into the book or you weren't able to use in the book uh, that you'd like to share with us? Matt, you first, because I don't have one at the moment. I'll <laughs> think of one. <laughs> well, for yeah. me, uh, Jack Johnson, the Jack Johnson character, you know, a well-known historical figure, uh, boxer and all that. And, and you know, and, and people know people know Jack Johnson from his career a few, you know, really a few years after about five or so years after the storm when he started winning lots and then he became heavyweight champion and then he became this sort of outlandish public figure, most famous black man in the world for almost probably at least good five to 10 years. Um, so there were lots of stories. Like, for example, he was a he was there at Galveston uh, during the storm. And there are stories of him performing several uh, sort of miraculous feats of strength and say, you know, he saved some people. Um, now, the problem is that these are some stories. They're not really confirmed and and it seems that later on in life, Jack Johnson was fond of, of telling lots of stories. I mean, he did lots of amazing things, but sometimes it's kind of hard to sort out what was, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, he was down in Key West. He was like a sponge diver at one point. He was like fighting sharks. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can't really confirm, but I, I did want to, I, I was very tempted to do more of, of, of Jack Johnson being a local Galveston guy being a being a black man growing up there and you know all kinds of neat stuff to work with and what i opted for instead was a more reduced role i just couldn't um i just couldn't sort of fit it out it fitted in there and, and i didn't feel really comfortable trying to inhabit him as fully as a character so i wanted to keep him secondary and so i left a lot of you know i mean this could have been a book about jack johnson in the galveston you know hurricane and everything else but 
I just, you know, I, the two boxers, Joe Kowinski was, was really intriguing to me because he's the lesser known, he's the unknown person, but yet he had this great fascinating life. You know, he was this wealthy parents and highly educated, you know, fond of quoting Shakespeare and, um, you know, and his, his father had a literary salon in San Francisco. Mark Twain used to hang out there with him. And, and, and this guy became a boxer, you know, and he's like 16 years old, uh, you know, fighting sailors down at the docks, you know, and like, how, how does that happen? You know, what do you, what, how does, how does your life bring you to that point? So that's, that story sort of took precedent. So I left a lot of, uh, a lot of Jack Johnson stuff, uh, especially get Jack Johnson and Galveston. I sort of left that out which would have been, which would have been fun to do. Yeah. And, and for me, um, yeah, I was talking earlier about the, the, the research that I did on FEMA policies, for example, and there were so many policy directives that I thought could make for great storylines. Um, and the one that I was alluding to earlier, this, this big document about, you know, sex offenders in, in shelters, I thought, okay, well, that, that was such a weird, interesting document and weird interesting kind of horrifying problem that, you know, there's this, this registry of um, sex offenders, this database that all police departments have. And um, um, it was a res result of federal and state legislation. And the idea of, you know, a, a shelter containing 10,000 people uh, that are, that are just, that have had to evacuate and how the, how whoever's in charge deals with issues like that. Um, but I decided I'm already, giving these people so many challenges. I'm not going to give them that one too. So I, I ended up just not pursuing that just because I thought that's something that I, you know, I may have alluded to it in one of the, the bits of dialogue, but yeah. So, you know, and that, that's always the, you know, what I think Matt was using the, um, the term, you know, restraint earlier on. And that's one of the, the problems with, with writing any kind of novel that involves research is, is that problem of restraint, you know, what you, what you leave on the cutting cutting room floor, the darlings that you kill. Well, again, thank you both so much for being here and, and chatting about your novels with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.